Thank you, Stephen. You got to hear him pray today. You get to hear him preach next Sunday. So glad to have him on our team. I want to draw your attention to the last song that we sung, remind you of the familiar words of that first verse. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever, my law, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. This may be one of the greatest anthems of assurance in our hymnal. It speaks of this blessed assurance. It draws out in words the experiential realities of the doctrine of assurance of salvation. If we have placed our confidence in Christ, which is what we talked about last week, then we can have confidence in God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. When life is humming along smoothly or when the bottom falls out, we can have assurance. In the end, if we are in Christ, all will be well so we can say now all is well. Let me ask a question as we begin this morning. Has God taught you to say, it is well? Many of the saints in the scriptures were taught to say, it is well. They had blessed assurance. Think of Job, who says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or think of David in Psalm 16. He says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. The Apostle John in 1 John 5 says that he has written this entire letter to the believers there. So that those who believe in the Son of God would know that they have eternal life. Or think of Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, a passage used so frequently at funeral services, Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. These were not proud men. These were all men who had deep humility and yet strong assurance, a confidence not in themselves, a confidence in God. They were taught 
to say, it is well. Have you been taught to say the same? In our passage this morning, God wants to teach you. God wants to teach you about the doctrine of assurance and to show you that it is grounded in what we've been learning over the last number of weeks. The doctrine of assurance is grounded in the doctrine of justification. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 8, all the way through 320, we saw our need for justification. Apart from Christ, all of us are under the wrath of God. Then from 321 through the end of chapter 4, we saw the way of justification. It is through faith in Christ alone and what He has done for us that we are declared right by God. Beginning now in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8 begins a section which begins to lay out for us the blessings of this justification that we have. And what is emphasized from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 8 is this idea of assurance. So my sermon in a sentence this morning is this. Justification should lead to assurance. We'll read the whole passage in a moment, but let me simply acknowledge the fact that as we read the passage, we will not find the word assurance in it. But I think you will see that the concept of assurance permeates the whole of it. It comes to us through a different repeated word. The word is translated as rejoice. Notice it there at the beginning of the passage in verse 2. Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see the same word again at the end in verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word rejoice here carries the idea of a joyful confidence. Joyful confidence. What Paul is doing, it's hard to see in the English, but it's very clear in the original, is to set up a contrast between what he taught us last week and what he's trying to say to us this week through the use of the same word. He made it clear last week that if we are justified through faith in Christ, we have no reason to boast. No reason to boast in our own works. Look back at chapter 3. Verse 27, he heads off this whole section by saying, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. That word boasting is the same word used in chapter 5, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 11, that is translated as rejoicing. So what is Paul doing? He's saying we do not boast in our works if we're justified through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't place joyful confidence in ourselves. But what he is saying here is if we are justified through faith alone, in Christ alone, that should lead to joyful confidence in God. It should cause us. To boast in God. 
So don't boast in yourself or in your works, but you should boast in God. You should have confidence in God. Why? Verses 1 to 2 lays out the logic. And I want to establish this main point before we move on. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so there's his big transition into this next section, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Through faith, we're reconciled to God. We're in right relationship with God. But not only that, he says in verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're no longer under the wrath of God. We now stand under the grace of God. And what are the results of that? What are the blessings that flow from justification? It is assurance. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Or if I can translate it this way, we have joyful confidence in hope of the glory of God. What is the hope of the glory of God? Well, remember that word glory of God. It comes in a very familiar verse to most of you. Chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God. So the glory of God here, at a minimum, is the image of God seen in humanity. In Adam, when he fell, he failed to reflect God's image. And the whole of creation fell with him. Things are no longer the way that they are supposed to be. Do you feel that? Do you know that? The creation is broken. As one theologian said, the fall was the vandalism of shalom. The vandalism of shalom. Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 23, to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the bad news. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So through faith in Christ, one thing is put to right in this fallen world. That is our broken relationship with God. We are declared righteous. We are justified. That's what Romans 3 teaches us. But Romans 5 teaches us something more. Not only are sinners who fall short of the glory of God justified, because we are justified, now we have hope that the glory of God that was lost in Adam, the glory of God that we fall short of in our sin will one day be restored. If the fall was the vandalism of Shalom, we know now that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will experience the restoration of all that was vandalized. The restoration of shalom. The restoration of the glory of God. Those who are justified should have joyful confidence that that day is coming 
And that day is for them. They have hope. They have a blessed assurance. Justification should lead to assurance. That's the main point. If we are justified, we have every reason to have a joyful confidence in the future. Even when sorrows like sea billows roll. Even when Satan should buffet. Even when trials come. When the world, the flesh, and the devil are knocking at your door, even then, we should say, it is well. I'm good. It is well with my soul. But let's just be honest for a moment. While justification should lead to assurance, we don't always experience this blessed assurance. We need to grow, don't we? So how can we grow in our sense of assurance? The rest of this passage this morning in verses 3 to 10, God teaches us to say it is well. He teaches us three truths that will help us to have blessed assurance. So if you would now, finally, please stand for the reading of God's Word. To catch these verses in context, I'm going to read all of verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Justification should lead to assurance. But how do we grow in assurance? How do we grow in a joyful confidence in God, a joyful confidence in future salvation that awaits those who are presently justified by faith? Paul gives three ways that we can grow in assurance. The first is found 
in verses 3 to 4, and it's somewhat counterintuitive. We grow in assurance when our faith is proven under pressure. Paul begins by saying that those who are justified by faith, verse 2, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. They have joyful confidence in the hope of the glory of God. We can boast in hope. But in verse 3, he says we can also boast in our sufferings. We not only rejoice that we will one day be delivered from our sufferings, Paul says that we can rejoice now in our present sufferings. But why? That seems odd. But to understand Paul's logic, we need to understand what he means by these words in verses 3 to 4. What does he mean by sufferings? Is he speaking of sufferings generally? I think the word could be translated as pressures. Jesus taught his disciples that they would have many pressures from the world. They would face persecution and opposition. They would face all kinds of circumstances that would tempt them to throw in the towel. Remember what Jesus said in John 16. He said, I say these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That word tribulation is the same word in Romans 5 for sufferings or this idea of pressures. Paul says something very similar in Acts 14. He said that through many tribulations, many pressures, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering, tribulations, pressures, they've been promised to us. Jesus made it clear. Paul has made it clear. You can count on them. But there's a purpose behind them. These pressures test our faith in Christ. And they can prove our faith in Christ. How? Well, those who have saving faith in Christ, they will persevere in the pressure. They will endure in suffering. And that endurance will produce character. Again, a little more nuance may be helpful on this word. I would say tested character. A character that has been proven. All of this is showing us that the pressures in our lives provide the opportunity to prove our faith in Christ. We can look at this teaching in many other places throughout the Scriptures. The New Testament is very clear, very clear, that saving faith, by definition, perseveres to the end. Saving faith perseveres to the end. It may not look perfect. It may not be the strongest. But it perseveres all the way to the end. The book of Hebrews is all about this theme. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. We should rejoice in pressures 
because they give an opportunity to prove our faith. What's the logic here? How are we justified? By faith alone. In Christ alone. And so as our faith is put under pressure and proven to be genuine over time, we know what Paul teaches at the end of Romans chapter 8. That those whom God has justified by faith, He will one day glorify. You can count on it. It's not as though some who are justified fall off the wagon along the way and are not glorified. That's not true. All who have genuine faith in Christ are justified and will be glorified. So as your faith is proven under pressure over time and you persevere in it, you can have a growing assurance of the hope of glory. A confidence not in yourself, but a confidence that God is at work, granting you faith and preserving your faith. Let me ask a question. When you encounter pressures in your life that test your faith, what is your attitude toward them? Do you see them simply as a burden? I do, often, even this morning, a number of pressures. This is such a burden. Paul wants us to see that these are a blessing, an opportunity to exercise faith in God, to test our faith, to prove our faith. Paul says that our present sufferings are a way that we grow in assurance that one day we will no longer have sufferings. He also says that we grow in assurance when our heart grasps God's love. We grow in assurance when our heart grasps God's love. This comes out in verses 5 to 8. Gaining hope from suffering may seem like a shameful thing to the world. You're suffering and you're joyful in it? What's wrong with you? But Paul says that hope does not put us to shame. We may be shamed for suffering for our faith now, but we will not be put to shame on the last day. We will be vindicated on the last day. But how can we have confidence today that we will not be put to shame on the last day? Well, it has to do with an understanding of God's love for us. Look at verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Did you know that this is the first time in the book of Romans that is all about the gospel? The first time the word love is used. We've heard of God's grace, but we've not yet heard 
of God's love. We've seen very clearly that through faith in Christ, we are not guilty in God's courtroom. The legal aspects of our salvation have been prominent throughout this letter. But Paul now pulls back the curtain and shows us what's behind all of this legal talk. It's God's love. We're not simply acquitted of our sins. We're not only declared righteous. We have been restored to a right relationship with God. Paul draws this out more clearly in verses 10 to 11, if I can borrow from them for now. Verse 10, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want you to notice the imagery here. To be reconciled moves beyond being declared righteous. Paul has moved us from the courtroom to the family room. We have been acquitted, declared not guilty, let out of prison to sin, but not simply to wander the streets. We have now been brought by adoption into the family of God. And this should give us great assurance. That is why J.I. Packer says, And I quote him at length. Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. Higher even than justification. Justification is a forensic idea. Conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea. Conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship and establishes as children and heirs. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. The reason we can have hope, the ground of our assurance is that the Holy Spirit pours out this love of God into our hearts. He makes us grasp it at the very depth of our being. Paul picks up this idea at the end of this section in chapter 8. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. The Spirit reminds us God loves us, that He's brought us into His family. And as family members, full legal family members, we have inheritance rights. We have hope in the glory of God that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We have assurance.
But I am very aware, and I suspect Paul was too, that sometimes we do not sense the love of God in our hearts. Although the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God in our hearts, and we ought to pray that we grow in a greater understanding of the love of God, as we see in Ephesians chapter 3, the reality is, is that sometimes we don't quite believe it. And so thankfully, God has not only poured out His love through the Spirit, He has also proven it at the cross. Our feelings may ebb and flow, but when they do, we look not to our subjective feelings, but to the objective, historic cross of Christ on Golgotha. The point is God's love is demonstrated there. Verses 6 to 8 draw this out. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, still in our sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. To drive this home, in verses 7 to 8, Paul sets up a contrast. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The point is that God's love is entirely by grace. While we were still weak, not seeking God. While we were still sinners, it was then that Christ died for us. Paul's logic is it's rare for anyone to voluntarily die for anyone else. Maybe a righteous person that does all of the right things. Maybe a good person who is benevolent toward all. Maybe somebody who is close to you, family, friends. But that is not what Jesus did. We are told that Jesus died for us when we were sinners. What is more, as verse 10 says, the Son of God died for us while we were His enemies in outright rebellion against Him. What further proof do you need that God loves you? John Stott says that you can measure God's love by the costliness of the gift and the worthiness of the one who receives the gift. How much did the gift cost? God paid the highest price possible to show you His love. He gave His only Son on the cross to die for your sins. And how worthy are we as recipients of this gift? We are unworthy altogether. It was while we were still weak. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Are you wavering in your assurance of salvation? There is nothing better for you than to meditate on God's love. That's the medicine you need if you are going to grow in assurance. You need to grasp God's love. Let's now look at the final way 
we can grow in assurance. In verses 9 to 10, here's the point. We grow in assurance when we believe God will finish what he started. In these verses 9 to 10, Paul is making a greater to lesser argument. What he did in the past was so great, surely, clearly, he will accomplish what he has for us in the future. Let's read them again. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The main verb in both of these verses is the verb saved. When we use the word saved in most instances in the evangelical church today, we are talking about what? Something that happened in the past, our conversion in the past. And it's true, salvation does involve conversion, but salvation is much bigger than initial conversion. It involves the whole sweep of God's saving work from the election of the saints before the foundation of the world all the way to the consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. When Paul uses the word saved here, He's not thinking of something in the past. He is looking forward to something in the future. He's thinking of the final judgment. And his point is really not that hard to understand. If the blood of Christ has dealt with your sins, then we don't have to fear the wrath of God. If his death accomplished so much for us, reconciled us to God, then surely his life, his resurrection from the dead, confirms his death was enough. We will, therefore, be saved from the final judgment. The work that God began in Christ's death and resurrection were decisive. It not only made possible final salvation from judgment, it actually accomplished full and final salvation for all who believe the gospel. What God did in the past in Christ, what God did in the past in granting you faith in Christ, all of that is so powerful that it guarantees the future. That's the logic. We can have assurance of salvation if we have placed our trust in Christ. If salvation is from God, from God, then you can be sure that God will finish what he started. That's why Paul ends by saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God. Our assurance is based on the fact that God saved. Our joyful confidence is in God. Through Christ, God has given reconciliation. We can be confident that he will then bring about the glory of God that was spoken of in verse 2. Salvation. Let me just tell you this, remind you of this. I said it last week. Your salvation, the whole package, is not based on the strength of your faith. 
It's based on the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. The same principle is at play when it comes to the doctrine of assurance. To have assurance is not to have some super power in yourself. To have assurance is to have confidence that salvation is from God and by God from beginning all the way to the end. God saves. So how should you respond to this message today? There are two implied responses to this passage. Neither explicit, for Paul is simply describing what is true. There are no commands in this passage. But I believe there are two implied and related responses. First, you should receive Christ. Second, you should rejoice in God. Receive Christ. Rejoice in God. Paul is writing to a group of believers who have placed their confidence in Christ alone for salvation. That is his assumption as he is writing. But I am not making that same assumption this morning. I assume that most of you have placed your trust in Christ. But I do not assume that all of you have. So the fundamental response for you this morning is to receive Christ as your Savior. To place your confidence in Him. It is only through faith in what He has done. Not what you do. That can save you from the wrath of God. It is only by His blood that your sins can be atoned for and forgiven. Without Christ, we are without hope and without God in this world. Without Christ, you are not children of God. You are, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. But John 1 teaches us to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he has been given the right to be called children of God. If you receive him, you will be saved from your sins and you will be in the future saved from the future wrath of God. I invite you to receive him. And if you have received him, then I invite you, call you, implore you to rejoice in God. There are many things in your life that are hard. Right? There are many reasons that sorrows like sea billows roll. Satan buffets. Trials. They come. There are many reasons to grieve, many reasons to mourn. But if we are in Christ, if we believe all that we have heard this morning, then we can have joy in the midst of our sorrows. We can have hope in the middle of our hardships. Is your life marked by blessed assurance, joyful confidence in God? If not, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you 
that you can rejoice in the pressures of life because you see them as opportunities to prove your faith. You can rejoice in all that you are going through if you grow in the confidence that God loves you. He's poured out His love for you in His heart, in your hearts, and He's proven it on the cross. And if you'll keep a long-term perspective that God will finish what He started, then you can rejoice now, even in the midst of much difficulty. Receive Jesus. Rejoice in God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you supremely for your love for us demonstrated at the cross. I pray you would help us to grow in our confidence that what Christ did there guarantees our future eternal inheritance. And that that perspective, looking backward, looking forward, would help us in the present to endure and to endure with joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.